Well, if you have a Bible, turn to the Gospel of Luke. So this week, I stumbled upon a striking 2017 quote from the U.S. Surgeon General. He makes an astonishing claim. He says this, During my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes. It was loneliness. And just this year, the Surgeon General's office uh, released a comprehensive report on an epidemic of loneliness and isolation that we are experiencing here in this country. And this got me thinking about television, but maybe not in the way you would think. See, for me, more than anything, my heart resonates with story. And a lot of the time, our fictional storytelling is about wish fulfillment. For example, I think our recent cultural obsession with superheroes reflects really our internal conviction that we're special and that we secretly have this unspoken desire for power to reshape the world as we see fit. But real talk, the best shows on television are not about superheroes. For our lonely and our isolated society, the best shows on television have always been about finding family in unexpected and unlikely places. I have a few visual examples for you up on the screen, but can you think of any others? Shows that are about unexpectedly finding family? You can shout them out. Murder, she wrote. Okay, any others? Big Bang, Family Ties. Yeah? Simpsons, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Firefly, exactly. We are hoping that our study group at the community college will be so rich and intimate we will become like family. Like that the folks at the bar and cheers aren't just people getting a drink, but become one together, that a multi-species, multi-ethnic crew on a spaceship can somehow be family, and on and on and on. Now let me quote to you from a a Biola Seminary professor, and he's also a pastor in Los Angeles. His name is Jeremy Treat. He says this, If our longing for community is to be satisfied... We must look to the most unlikely person, a man who never married, was abandoned by his closest friends, and died one of the loneliest and most shameful deaths imaginable. The atoning death of Christ on the cross is the answer to our isolation because it creates a community bound together by something stronger than DNA. Jesus died for our sins, but his death accomplished much more than our individual forgiveness. Through the blood of Christ, we are saved into the church, adopted into a family, and rescued into a kingdom. Just as Christ's cross had a vertical and a horizontal beam, the sacrifice of Jesus reconciles us to God vertically and to one another horizontally. I want this community-creating aspect of the gospel to be front of mind for you as we dive back this morning into Luke. You see, last week we examined Jesus' parable of the sower and the soils. And I'll read a, a little excerpt just to jog your memory. 
And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to Jesus, he said to them in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And he sowed and some fell on the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil, and it grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, he says to his disciples, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And then he went on to explain it. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. And we unpacked that story, that metaphor, that illustration in all its detail last week. But now Jesus is going to expand upon that teaching today by offering his disciples yet another illustration. And we pick up the thread this morning in verse 16. No one, after lighting a lamp, Jesus says, covers it with a jar or puts it on a bed, but he puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. You see, Jesus is thinking of a little oil lamp like this. This is the light switch of the ancient world. For this is how, without electricity, they would illuminate their homes after dark. Now, Jesus' original audience would recognize the foolishness of putting a little oil lamp like this under a bowl. I like the fire, so I'm not going to extinguish it. But not only does it hide the light, but it extinguishes the flame. And then when you would put it under a straw bed, that's even stupider. Because not only does it hide the light, but straw is flammable. The best case scenario is that the light goes out. In the worst case, people burn. No, the logical thing to do is to put it on a stand so that those who enter the house may see the light. So how does this help us understand what Jesus has been trying to communicate? Let's sort of unpack this image this morning. The light in this scenario is the equivalent of last week's seed. The light is the saving word of the gospel. It's an image that the Apostle Paul picks up in 2 Corinthians. He says, For we, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
The light is that saving word. Jesus Christ is Lord. The knowledge of the glory of God revealed to us, made manifest to us in the face of Christ. So the saving word of the gospel is the light. The one who brings the light and lights the lamp is Jesus, the light of the world. The word made flesh. Listen to Jesus in the gospel of John. He says this, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is the light bringer. And while the seed is sown into the soil, the light is lit into the lamp. This little ceramic earthen jar. Whoa, my nerve disorder tremor is good today. Um, I'm going to put the fire down. (laughs) Uh, The little lamp, that is the human heart. Right? We go back to that same Corinthians passage. Paul continues, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Those are the jars he's talking about. These little lamps. And why do we have it in jars of clay? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. John the Baptist, I am not the light, right? I am not the one. He is the one. So, as we learned last week, we're these incredible recipients of grace. But we aren't wholly passive partners in this. We must react to the saving word of the gospel in faith. And we've already seen such responses this morning. Right? In Timothy, and Becca and Becky, and Hannah. But what does the scriptures, this scripture illuminate about that response of faith? Well, in the parable of the, the sower and the soils, the response of faith, the preparing of one's heart, looked like this. As for that, in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Now, today's illustration is going to give us fresh language. It's going to allow us to see from a different angle. Hearing the word and holding it fast in an honest and good heart now sounds like allowing the light to illuminate what is hidden in darkness, to reveal what is out of order and needs to be put right. And bearing fruit with patience strikes a different note as well in this parable. It's do not stifle or hide the light, but let it shine in the house. There's a French reformer who taught it this way. He says this, the one who hides the light is the one who keeps it idle without using it. Or by neglect, as if forgetting both God and his word, he lets it slip away and vanish. He hides the object when the flesh suppresses the spirit. He puts it under a bed when pleasures and attractions of the flesh destroy the soul and extinguish the light of God. 
Sounds a lot like last week, right? With the stones and the thorns and the soil. And two side notes here. Yes, I chickened out on pronouncing this guy's name. Jacques Lefeu ho ho ho. We're going to have plenty of French next week when Pastor Salenga comes. So I am saving all the beautiful sounding French. And I will just give you French sounding gibberish today. I also love reading the scripture. You might have told, discovered this about me. I love reading the scripture with the global and the historical church. Two of my favorite Bible study resources are my ancient Christian and my Reformation commentary series because they let me at a glance see how different eras of God's family understood and applied different passages in scripture. I find it clarifying to see how the Spirit spoke to earlier generations, and it also protects me from novel interpretations. If the church throughout history has always read something this way, I am not arrogant enough to believe that I have discovered the one true reading, and everyone before my 37 years of life was wrong. But what I appreciate most are the fresh insights right? The, the things that someone from a different time and a different place and a different culture can see that I miss. And in this case, our unpronounceable Frenchman uh, recognizes that this lit lamp doesn't have its own private journey with the Lord. It's placed on a stand within the house, and I just blow past that piece of the metaphor. But Frenchie slows me down and says, no, this is an important part of the message. Don't miss it. And he continues by saying this, the lampstand is the holy local congregation. It's above which the divine light is placed. And the house is the universal church and those entering are those just coming to faith or those who are being illumined by the faith of others only now. So what did I miss? Our experience of grace and our gospel transformation happens within, maybe must happen within the community of faith. Jesus says, I have placed you in this house now shine on the stand. I have placed you in this house. Now shine on the stand. Shine your light in the local congregation. A few months back, there was a big storm, and we lost power on our block. And the sudden darkness was initially daunting, exhilarating, scary. But then someone in our house found a little candle, and we lit it, and we began to gather around the table as a family in the dark. And more little candles were found and lit. And though none were much brighter than the other, as my wife and as each of my kids drew near with their little candle, the impact of those little lights was magnified. Fear dissipated. We grew in confidence and courage. In fact, by the accumulated lights, it shone so bright that we were able to continue our board game. And with the curtains thrown back, 
Our neighbors could also see our beckoning lights burning through the window. See, last Sunday we ended with the question, what's one way God is inviting you to prepare the soil of your heart and your life for his gospel fruit? And I had assumed that it was this private, individual sort of thing. How will you wake up early and all alone in quiet solitude partner in faith with what God seeks to do in and through your life? And it's not that we do not have an individual component of our journey of faith. But then we get this imagery of the lampstand and the house. And I'm reminded that Jesus has used the same language when he's talking to another community of believers. This time in this Greek city, Turkish city, Asian minor city of Ephesus. And in the book of Revelation, he says, remember Ephesians. Therefore, where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you, to your congregation. I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is a communal image. So now I hear Jesus say, take care then how you hear. And I realize that this is something that is lived out both privately and corporately. Our experience of grace and our gospel transformation must happen within a community of faith. When we come together, when we start to live life in close proximity with one another, things are illuminated to an even greater degree. We've already seen how reading the Scripture in community can allows us to to pick up on the profound depth and beauty and power of God's Word. But also the gathering of our lights together also graciously reveals what is hidden in the recesses and the shadows of our lives. If every week I come to my, our men's group on Wednesday nights and I'm, I'm complaining about my family or I'm exhausted and stressed out by the tasks and the challenges in my life, two things might happen. I might see another brother who is walking what are in real tangible terms a much harder road than I am. But I watch him trekking with joy and confidence and sleeping each night as a, like a baby as he trusts in the Lord, as he clings to God's power and sufficiency. And in that moment, his light, the light of the gospel in him, can spotlight my lack of faith. His example can be used by the Holy Spirit for my conviction and repentance. But maybe I'm going to be less perceptive. And instead, a brother with gentleness and and love pulls me aside and he says, Hey, no judgment, but I, I sense a pattern in you. It's something, I don't think it's your circumstances or the people in your life. It's something in here. You're clinging to this idol or you're, you're finding your, your sense of identity and worth 
and things outside of what the Lord has called you to, and they can gently draw me into the light. Our lights together can illuminate what for me is hidden in darkness, and the light of God's glorious grace and life can penetrate that part of my heart. It's also amazing that how, no matter how dark things get external to us, being bathed in light dissipates fear and inspires courage. And just think about the examples again that we've already seen in flesh and blood this morning. Could I really give the Lord six months? Maybe the rest of my life for his kingdom mission. Oh, that sounds impossible. But then we see Timothy say yes. And his light dissipates our fear. We see Becca, who was once a young, unexpected mother herself, now saying, wait, maybe the Lord is going to use me to be a blessing to these moms. And we see her light. And it's like, oh, maybe God can shine a light like that in me in a different way. We see Hannah's example. Jesus says, come, make a public declaration that you are mine. Some people are shy. They don't like being in front of people. But you see her like, and you go, you know what? Maybe the fire of the light of God is stronger than I realized. Jesus says, I have placed you in this house. Now shine on the stand. Nice. This gives me uh, such confidence, and I experience it as the Lord's kindness. Because the reality of it is, if I'm to step outside these walls with this little light of mine... It would get snuffed out by the wind. Yet God in his wisdom lit my lamp within the house, within the global millennia-spanning congregation of his people. And here I'm trying to hear and hold fast to the saving word of the gospel with a good and honest heart and to bear fruit with patience. And I'm I take comfort in the fact that I am not on a solo journey. I'm in the company of men and women, boys and girls of every skin color and language and culture and era. And in my own life, I find this to be an incredibly compelling apologetic. Because I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. We live now in the shadow of Seattle, and there are times where my decision to follow Jesus makes me feel like a crazy person, like I've gotten lost in a delusion. I feel strange and alone. I question and I doubt. But then I hear the story of someone like our Iranian brother, Sam Shora. I listened as he recounted how in a closed Muslim country half a world away, he met the same Jesus that I've met. Next Sunday, we're going to hear of tell of seeds sprouting and lights being lamped and lights being lit. Lamps being lit? 
lamps being lit in the Democratic Republic of Congo, a place that is so remote from our experience that I wonder how many of us could find it on a map. And it's not just now. It's also then. I can read the writings of a despairing Jewish prophet or a first century fisherman or a, a fourth century sex-addicted North African or a 12th, that's Augustine, or a 12th century jaded Italian aristocrat or a 15th century Spanish orphan girl or a 20th century Chinese academic living under Mao, all of whom met Jesus, the life giver, the light of the world, all of whom heard the saving word of the gospel, all of whom were utterly changed by grace. So what's more peculiar, the billions of people across time, space, and culture that have come to know Jesus as Lord, or the millions in our society today who doubt God's existence? Jesus says, I have placed you in this house. Now shine on the stand. (coughs) And then he says next, I've adopted you into this family. Now be family to one another. And here's how our passage ends today in the Gospel of Luke. Then Jesus' mother and his brothers came to him. And because they could not reach him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mothers and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my brother." I mean, my mother and my brothers and my sisters are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus is not, or Luke is not intending us to read this as Jesus being cool or callous towards his mother and brothers. In his gospel, standing outside is not some metaphor for estrangement, but Jesus uses the opportunity of this incident to make a point, to declare a shocking truth. In the reign of God, our notion of family gets enlarged and transformed. Family extends beyond kinship lines. And indeed, spiritual brothers and sisters will come to take precedence. They'll come to play a more significant role in our life than even our blood relations. Another Biola professor, this guy named Hellerman, puts it this way. Jesus models the new community he is establishing after the most important group found in the ancient world, the family. And Jesus' faith family replaces his natural at the center stage of Jesus' relational priorities. For the early Christians, loyalty to God found its tangible daily expression in unswerving loyalty to God's group, the family of surrogate siblings who called him father. We, think to, we tend to think of this differently, don't we? I have a ministry mentor who used to say that we think of the church as a conglomeration of families and that it is the church's task to strengthen those families. And yes, we want to see strong families in our community. But Jesus says, no, It's not a collection of families, but a new family, the family of God. 
and our experience of grace and gospel transformation happens within the family of faith, and that is an incredible blessing. It's the solution to our epidemic of isolation and loneliness. And I can't help it, I'm nerdy. I read a lot of history and I hear the voices of the church in my ears. Athanasius of Alexandria said, it is only on the cross that a man dies with arms outstretched that he might draw his ancient people, the Jews with one and the Gentiles with the other and join both together in himself. Alaret of Raveau taught that there are three types of friendships in the world. Carnal friendships based on amusement, worldly friendships based on usefulness, and spiritual friendship based on a mutual commitment to Jesus. And he says it's been proved that friendship must begin in Christ, continue in Christ, and be perfected by Christ. Jesus says, I've adopted you into this family. Now be family to one another. And one more, I don't know why I'm on a Biola professor kick this week, but one more quote. This is for you, Larry. Community is not an optional bonus for the people of faith. The cross is a community creating event, at once redeeming us from our sins and making us a people bound together by grace. Because of the gospel, the Christian answer to the loneliness epidemic is not about what we need to do to create community, but rather about what Christ has already done on behalf of us to make community. If you've trusted in Christ, you're not alone. You're part of a family. The communal nature of the atonement is not only profound, it is practical, changing the way we view and relate to others. This is great news. God has settled us in a family and he yearns for us to experience family on all these different levels. We have this incredible, rich, global family, the universal church. We have a warm, varied, quirky, extended family in this congregation. I just called you quirky, sorry. And God also invites us to experience the closeness and intimacy of family life in small group communities. Folks that we're actually journeying through life with, sharing our struggles, our successes, our food, our days. And the beauty is we can wade into these relational waters with confidence We don't have to say, it's going to be awkward. We don't really know each other. We don't really have anything in common. No, God has made you family. Now live into that reality. Take care how you hear. Our experience of grace and gospel transformation happens and must happen within the community of faith. Jesus has placed us in this house. Now shine on the stand. Let the light of the gospel and one another illuminate what is hidden. Dissipate our fear. Spark our confidence and our courage. Jesus has secured our adoption into this family. Now be family to one another. Don't hide or stifle your light. Let it shine for the world. Let it shine in the house so that others may draw near and be warmed and be brought to life by the light of life, Jesus himself. And we have a really practical step 
a, a very tangible way for you to apply what we're learning. I'm going to shortly invite up Julie Brannon to tell you all about the small groups that are starting up this fall. But first, we're going to worship the Lord in song. We're going to let our lights shine together, and we're going to let them burn bright in this house, in this grace-created family of faith. God, you are so good. I'm reminded of that psalm we read at the beginning of the service, that you settle the solitary in a home. That is one of the gifts of your grace. Not only do you bring forgiveness and transformation, you plant us in community where we can thrive. You put us in your field alongside other sprouting plants. You put us in your building where we can shine. And you say, together you are the temple where my spirit takes up residence so that the world might see and know Jesus, the lover of our souls, the light of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.